I'm going to try to move around a little bit more this week to prepare you for two weeks of Zach. So uh, just get ready for this. Two weeks of it. You've got a lot to look forward to. So. Now, in all seriousness, good morning and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, this is our final week in the book of Job. And in week one, we focused on Job, the most righteous man around, subjected to horrific suffering at Satan's hand. Job's servants are killed, his livestock is stolen, his house is blown down, his children are dead. Job is afflicted with a brutal skin disease. His wife suggests suicide. Now, unbeknownst to Job, Satan did all of this with the goal that Job would curse God and die. Satan had accused Job of only worshiping God for all the blessings God had given him. And Satan was hoping that in his suffering, Job would prove this accusation to be true. God, in his sovereignty, allowed Satan to put this theory to the test. But Job refuses to curse God. Instead, even after all his loss, all his pain, Job says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in week two, we wrestled with some of the biggest theological questions of Job. Namely, the relationship between Satan's havoc and God's sovereignty. And we came to the conclusion that there are some questions we simply can't answer. I don't mean that as a cop-out. And I'm not suggesting that we stop seeking truth, stop asking questions, and stop wrestling with difficult teachings. But it does mean that we humbly recognize our limitations. It means that we acknowledge that we can't fully grasp the magnitude of who God is all the time. It means that we admit that we don't always know why God does some things and allows some things and then doesn't do some things and doesn't allow other things. There are some questions we simply can't answer. And then last week we read about the other figures that fill the middle of the book. We're talking about Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three friends insist that Job must have sinned greatly to suffer so much, and that if he would just admit it and then repent, everything would get better, like the flip of a switch. But Job disagrees. He maintains his innocence. He calls his friends miserable comforters. And we agreed with Job's assessment. And we even added that these three friends were unreliable teachers of who God is and how God works in our world. And those people today who teach the same things that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar taught are unreliable teachers as well. Now, you know, this has all been helpful in our efforts to understand the book of Job. Hopefully by now we have a decent feel for how the story plays out, the role each person plays, the themes that pop up time and time again, and even how this difficult book might help us in our own times of suffering. But the truth is, we haven't even gotten to the best part of the book. Everything we've read so far, the first 37 chapters, have all been building up to the end. So today we reach the climax of the story. And we get our first extended look at God in the book of Job. And for the first time, Job himself sees God as well. 
Now, my words can't do justice to the image of God that we see today in Job. So we're going to spend a lot of time reading scripture today in several different chapters. We're going to let God speak for himself because he's the only one whose words can really do justice to who he is. So open your Bibles to Job chapter 38, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, we'll pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this opportunity to worship, to pray, to learn, to read, and to simply be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for people we know, people we love, and people we've just met. Thank you for the privilege of welcoming new people here on Sunday morning. And Father, I pray that you would be with us as we consider what your word has to say. Father, we thank you for the Fenimore family, uh, the anniversary that happens today. We thank you that Sarah is alive and well and thriving, and we pray that would continue. And Father, we pray for other people in our church family as well, Uh, those people who are ill, those people who are suffering, uh, those people who have undergone significant life changes, the births of babies and surgeries and moves and, and all kinds of things, Father. We simply lift them up to you. And Father, I pray that This morning would be honoring to you. What we say and what we do would be glorifying to you and that being reminded of who you are and what you've done for us would be an encouragement for us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his broken body, his shed blood. We thank you for his resurrection and we look forward to his return. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, as the story progresses, as Job and his friends argue back and forth, round and round, chapter after chapter, the long-suffering Job starts to unravel a little bit. There appear to be some cracks developing in Job's foundation. Now, it's true that Job doesn't curse God to his face the way that Satan hoped he would. But Job does appear to grow increasingly impatient confused, and even frustrated with God throughout the book. Job says things about God that before all of this suffering, he would have considered unthinkable. He would have thought it irreverent or foolish. He probably would have rebuked someone who said the things that he is now saying. But let's be honest. Can you really blame him? After all the pain that Job has experienced, is it in any way surprising that even the most righteous man around would eventually get worn down? If you've ever suffered yourself, or if you've ever been around someone who is, you know that suffering can make us say and do things that we wouldn't have considered before. One second we're up, the next second we're down. We're optimistic at one moment and pessimistic in the next. One minute we're grateful for all the small graces that God still shows us, and the next minute all we can think about is how much we've lost. We can speak of God with great humility and respect today, only to speak brashly and irreverently about him tomorrow. If you've ever suffered before for any extended period of time, you know that's true. And it's true in the case of Job as well. And as the story develops... Multiple times throughout the book, 
as Job appears to be approaching the end of his rope, he expresses his longing for a hearing with God. After everything he's been through, Job wants to give God a piece of his mind. He wants to defend himself against what appears to be God's injustice. Job is ready for God to explain all of his suffering. He's ready for God to explain himself. Job wants answers. And in chapters 38 through 41, Job gets the hearing with God that he wanted. Chapter 38 Starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Chapter 40, verse 1, God speaking again. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So when God first speaks to Job in this whirlwind, he doesn't speak the way you might expect him to. He doesn't speak with gentle, soothing words of sympathy and comfort. He doesn't congratulate Job on a job well done. He doesn't feel the need to explain himself, defend himself, or expose Satan as the real villain of the story. The first thing God does when he speaks out of this whirlwind is he rebukes Job in no uncertain terms. Remember what happened when a great wind appeared at the beginning of the story? Job's house collapsed and his children were killed. So just imagine the terror that Job must feel when he sees a whirlwind appear out of the sky. You can picture him trembling, wondering what new form of suffering could possibly strike him now after everything he's been through. But then when he hears the voice of God himself, Job realizes that this is no normal whirlwind. This is something new. God peppers Job with roughly 80 questions, and Job doesn't even attempt to answer them, nor should he. He can't. And in these 80 questions, several themes start to emerge. For example, Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, we see this theme of God as creator. God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In other words, Job, you think you're so smart? You think you know how I ought to run my world? You think you can do it better than me? Well, Job, were you there when I made it? Where were you, Job? You weren't there. Chapter 38, starting in verse 22, we see another theme that God did not just create the world, but God actively sustains the world. Verse 22, Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, 
for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Verse 34. Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. In other words, Job, do you make the snowfall? Can you single-handedly change the weather, change the course of history, change the course of battles between kings? Do you control the light, the wind, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, the dew, and the frost? Can you count the clouds, Job? The answer is no. And then look at verse 1 through 3 of chapter 39. We see another theme that God is the master of things that scare people like you and me and Job. 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Verses 19 through 20. Job, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. And then verses 26 and 27. Job, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Job, do you know how many mountain goats there are in this world? Well, God remembers their birthdays. The most fearsome, awe-inspiring creatures on this planet, God made them. The birds that you and I and Job gaze at from the ground, God tells them where to fly, tells them when to land, tells them where to live. The beasts, the monsters that people in Job's day and age were afraid of, behemoth and leviathan, they were nothing to God. They're like the family pet. Now you might hear these questions, hear these words and wonder, why does God rebuke Job so harshly? After everything he's been through, God comes in a whirlwind and asks Job these questions that Job cannot possibly answer. Why? Well, in short, throughout his suffering, Job appears to have forgotten who he's been speaking about. At one point in the middle of God's rebuke, Job speaks up and admits that he cannot even attempt to answer these questions. But God's not done yet. Chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? 
Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, when you can do all those things, when you can judge the world, when you have glory and splendor and power and majesty that can even come close to matching mine, Job, then you can talk to me. Then you can answer me. Then you can question me. But until then, you can't. God pulls no punches. And he reminds Job of his place in the created order. God reminds Job that no victimhood, no amount of suffering, no perceived injustice qualifies Job to interrogate or accuse God. God rebukes Job with questions that Job simply can't answer. He puts Job in his place. So Job finally has had his hearing with God. But instead of the explanation that he had hoped for, Job got rebuked. So the question is, what will Job say now? How will he respond to these questions, these words from God? Well, if God came into your presence in a whirlwind and rebuked you, asked questions like these, refused to answer your questions, and thoroughly put you in your place after you endured what you believed to be innocent suffering, how would you respond? What would you say? This is Job's opportunity. At the beginning of the book, he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But you know, that was before the skin disease. That was before his wife left him. That was before his friends, the people he trusted the most, attacked him. That was before God rebuked him. What will Job say? Has his heart been hardened since he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord, way back in chapter 2? Will he follow Satan's guidance to curse God and die? He's got nothing to lose, right? Look at chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job responds in the only way appropriate. In light of everything he's seen, everything he's heard. He responds with humility, submission, 
silence and repentance. He falls on his face before this great God. Job remembers his place. In short, Job trusts God. Now, what does he repent of? I mean, wasn't Job innocent of all the accusations that his friends made? We've talked about how Job was so righteous. What does he have to repent of? Well, Job doesn't repent of some sin that caused his suffering or led to his suffering, the way his friends argued. Instead, he repents of the irreverent way he spoke about God during his suffering. And it's also worth noting that God doesn't offer Job what his friends promised. God doesn't tell Job, now, if you repent, if you just admit you were wrong, if you apologize to me, then I'll take your suffering away. Everything will get better the way Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said it would. All you have to do is admit you were wrong, and then I'll feel better. I'll give you your good skin back. I might even reward you in some other ways. You'll be rich again. God doesn't say any of that stuff. And yet Job still repents. Because even if his suffering continues... Even if his situation never changes from the misery of the past 41 chapters, Job has now seen God. And he now knows that humility, submission, repentance, throwing yourself at his feet is the only proper response to the God that he has just encountered. Commentator H.H. Rowley says, In Job's prosperity, he thought he had known God. But now he realizes that compared with his former knowledge, his present knowledge is the joy of seeing, compared with hearing a mere rumor. All his past of experience of God was as nothing compared with the experience he had now found. Job, therefore, no longer cries out to be delivered from his suffering. Job rests in God, even in his pain. Now, ultimately, God does commend Job for this response. Because even though God rebuked Job, he's still gracious. He's never stopped loving Job. God rebukes Job's three friends. And Job graciously repents on their behalf. Just like he used to do for his kids before they died. God graciously forgives Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, for all of their false words. And God does restore Job's reputation. He does restore his wealth. It appears that even Job's wife returns, and they have ten more children. But this isn't so much a reward for a job well done. It's not a pat on the back. And it's impossible to replace all of Job's loss. It's impossible to erase all the suffering that he experienced. But God didn't owe Job anything. And conversely, Job didn't feel entitled to some sort of payback. But God graciously allows Job to die like the righteous man that he is. And then the story ends. You know, as I thought about the sermon this past week, I wondered about what kind of application might come from Job chapters 38 through 41. This is normally the part of the sermon where we talk about application, what this text means for you. 
Now, application is important. All the preaching experts say that we need to tell our congregation how this text affects them. I'm supposed to give you three lessons, five suggestions, ten tips on how this story can help you have a happier marriage, help you have better behaved kids, an improved relationship with your boss, more stable finances, all kinds of felt needs, all kinds of things like that. And you know, it's even better, you get bonus points if your three lessons, your five suggestions, or your ten tips can start with the same letter, or maybe even rhyme. Then you get bonus points. But you know, to be honest, I just don't really have that this morning. I don't have three lessons, five suggestions, ten tips. But here's the best application I can come up with. Here's what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to go home, and I want you to reread Job 38 through 41. And I want you to gaze at the sheer majesty of God. Just stare at the majesty of God in these chapters. Because the God we read about in the book of Job is the same God that you and I worship. The creator of everything seen and unseen. The sustainer to this very day of our world. Eternal, infinite, lacking nothing in himself. All-powerful, unchangeable, not limited by the constraints of time and space. Transcendent, perfectly holy, and perfectly good. Sovereign over the lightning in the sky, the animals giving birth, nations and rulers, and the blades of grass springing up as we speak. This God is greater than anyone or anything the most brilliant and creative minds in history could possibly even dare to think up. This God is so much greater and so much bigger than you and I typically believe. So much greater and so much bigger than we're usually taught. So just gaze at the majesty of God. Stare at his splendor. Gasp at his glory. And when you think you can even fathom just the tiniest sliver of how great our God really is, respond in the only way appropriate. Submit yourself to him. Humble yourself before him. Throw yourself at his feet and repent. And then once you've done that for a bit, once you've read those chapters, considered the majesty of God, consider the fact that this God cares for you. Seriously, think about that. This God cares for you. This breathtaking God sees you. He knows you. He cares about unremarkable, insignificant, normal people like us. This awesome God cares about Chris the banker, Bethany the stay-at-home mom, Sharon the nurse, Jeanette the retiree, Alyssa the high school student, Mike the mechanic, Luke the engineer, and Don the insurance salesman. He cares about people like us in this room. You know, you may often feel like just another face in the crowd. And sometimes maybe you are. To many people's eyes, you are. But don't forget that this amazing God we just read about cares for you. In the midst of your successes, your failures, your sorrows, your joys, your moments of faith, and your moments of doubt. 
Our God is not tame. And yet he is near. And in his grace, he takes the time to stoop down from his throne and pays attention to people like you and people like me. Think about that. You know, gazing at the majesty of God makes the gospel that much more shocking. That this incredible God cares enough for insignificant people like you and me. And not just insignificant, but lost, sinful, rebellious, disobedient people like you and me. He cares enough, he is gracious enough to send his own son, fully God and fully man, to live a sinless life, die on a cross from our sins, and rise from the dead. Just think about that. Gaze at this glorious truth. Dwell on it. Rest in it. Read it. Reread it. And then re-reread it. Be continually in awe of it. And respond to it in the only way appropriate. With submission, humility, repentance, and praise. Throw yourself at his feet. But look up at him with confidence because of what Christ has done for you. The God who spoke our world into existence out of nothing is your Father. The God who controls the lightning and counts the clouds is your friend. The God who sees the birth of the most inconsequential animal on the most faraway mountain cares about you. And you have been reconciled to him by his son, Jesus Christ. And if our God is really like that, if he really is as big and amazing and awesome as we read about in the book of Job, which I think he really is, then may we repeat with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord, even in the midst of our darkest storms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that small people like us, sinful people like us, can dare come into your presence, can dare address you, can dare call upon you, can dare seek out a relationship with you. In all of our sin, all of our disobedience, all of our rebellion. But Father, we can only dare approach you with any sense of confidence because of what Christ has done for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we read passages like these in the book of Job, passages that just boggle our minds and just leave us amazed and shocked and confused and curious about just how great and glorious you really are, I pray that we would respond in the appropriate way. I pray that we would respond with humility, with submission, with repentance. That we would throw ourselves at your feet and take joy in the fact that you are gracious to us. You care about us. You love us. Father, help us to love you and trust you and worship you in times of darkness and in times of light. I pray that our understanding of you would Be based a little bit less on our circumstances 
and would be based more on your character and your glory as revealed to us in passages like what we read today. Father, I pray that we would give you the praise, the glory, the worship that is due you. Because as we read today, you deserve every single bit of it and more. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your glory revealed not just in this passage in the Old Testament, but in the cross and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.